The Old Testament lesson this morning is from the book of Jonah, chapter 2. We're going to read the whole chapter. You can find it on page 845 of your pew Bible. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. How shall I look again upon your holy temple? The waters closed in over me. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought, me up, uh, you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. As my life was ebbing away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who worship vain idols forsake their true loyalty. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Deliverance belongs to the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to the fish, and it spewed Jonah out upon the dry land. The New Testament lesson is from the book of Philippians, chapter 4, verses 4 through 9. You can find this on page 1071 of your Bible. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, beloved, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep on doing the things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Good morning. It is great to be with you this morning. This is the first time I've had a chance to be at Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church, but your, uh, your reputation precedes you at Columbia Theological Seminary. Uh, you have sent students to us and taken our students as your ministers. You've sent uh, board members to us, uh, and we just have deep connections. I'm very grateful to be here finally to see what this place looks like. I do note that uh, some of the connections found out I was coming, so like Dalshrek left. <laughs> I noticed Joan Gray stayed, though, so thank you. <laughs> um, I bring greetings then from Columbia, from her 10th president, uh, Leanne Van Dyke, who was also here yesterday for the STEPS conference. And um, I don't think you should have to work very hard to get her to come back to maybe preach for you at some point, which um, given the way um, staff keep changing right now, you, you may be looking for some extra preachers and, and Charlie may need the break. So, yeah. Will you pray with me? Lord, in the words I speak and the words that we hear make your word present, enlivening us, transforming us, preparing us to be sent into your world to do your will. Amen. 
I'm going to begin this sermon unusually with a couple of disclaimers. The first disclaimer is that as a seminary professor, I know how important accurate biblical interpretation is, and in spite of that, I have chosen to deliberately misinterpret the Bible in my sermon title. You see, I know that the text says that Jonah is swallowed not by a whale, but by a great fish. The reason I know that is one of the few words I remember from seminary is the word for fish, which is dog, which I thought was hilarious when I heard that. If the writer had wanted to say whale, he could have said whale, or perhaps he might have said leviathan. It would have amounted to the same thing, but he chose dog, a great dog that swallows Jonah. Now, I don't really have any desire to model bad biblical interpretation in front of you, my gracious hosts at Mount Pleasant Presbyterian, but getting caught up in debates about the pre-Linnaean classification of animals seems a fairly obvious misstep in the context of a classic and really quite funny parable. Sometimes, after all, telling the way, changing the way you tell a joke can actually improve that joke. Or to say that all differently, I don't care if the text says big fish, it could say giant squid, for all I care. In this context, at least, I'm going to say whale. When Charles preaches on the text, and I saw him taking notes at the first service about this, he can explain to you how important it is to distinguish big fish from whales in the Old Testament. I don't mind. I won't be here to hear him, be here to hear him correct me anyway. So that's the first disclaimer. The second disclaimer that I have is that in all my readings of it, as much as I have loved the book of Jonah, I have never really liked the second chapter of the book of Jonah. I genuinely treated, generally treated this odd poetic intrusion into a perfectly good prose story in roughly the same way I've always treated making my bed in the morning. That is to be avoided if possible, to be completed when necessary, and to be rushed through in any case. <laughs> now, one of the reasons I've never really liked the book of Jonah, or Jonah 2 at least, is as I note that odd poetic interruption. It's like inserting a spoken word section into an otherwise perfectly good song in order to signal to listeners that this song is meaningful. It just comes across as pandering to me. The whole point of the book of Jonah, after all, is that deliverance belongs to the Lord. Do we really need Jonah in full-throated, albeit bubble-muffled, song to make that particular point. Don't God's last words in chapter 4 make the point just as clearly and with a good deal more humor where he, write, where he says, should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons and also many cattle? <laughs> now the other reason I've never really liked Jonah too is that I've always had trouble figuring out how Jonah who, let's face it, is among the more petty and self-absorbed characters that we find in Scripture. Really, one wonders what he would be like in an age of Twitter and Facebook. One wonders how Jonah suddenly gets all large-hearted and thankful inside the belly of a whale. Really? This is the place to count your blessings? Surrounded by mucus and krill and fish that couldn't swim fast enough? This, this doesn't sound like Jonah. Then I happened to be reading George Orwell's wonderful essay on English literature in the first half of the 20th century. That essay is called Inside the Whale 
title from which I get my title. See, there's a reason I didn't say big fish. And I came across the following passage. I'm quoting now. The fact is that being inside a whale is a very comfortable, cozy, home-like thought. The historical Jonah, if he can be so called, was glad enough to escape. But in imagination, in daydream, countless people have envied him. It is, of course, quite obvious why the whale's belly is simply a womb big enough for an adult. There you are, in a dark, cushioned space that fits you exactly with yards of blubber between yourself and reality, able to keep an attitude of the completest indifference no matter what happens. A storm that would sink all the battleships in the world would hardly reach you as an echo. Short of being dead, it is the final unsurpassable stage of irresponsibility. Well, with Orwell as my light, the passage finally started to make sense to me. Jonah isn't grateful to be alive. That just makes no sense for his character, given how he behaves either before or after his great cetacean journey. Instead, he's grateful that God is now apparently doing for him the very thing that he failed to do, absenting himself from a world in which people do horrible things and God offers forgiveness. Where a ship can't remove you geographically from the world, a whale can do so chronologically by taking you back to the pre-birth comforts of the womb. Now, Orwell's throwaway line was a revelation to me about Jonah 2. Rather than thinking of Jonah 2 about that learning that Jonah 2 was about learning to be thankful regardless of our situation, which is the way I'd always heard Jonah 2 interpreted, perhaps what we're supposed to learn here is that a whale's belly is not really the best place to learn gratitude. I mean, anybody can be grateful when in comfort and at a great distance from the trials and tribulations of the world. Put that person back in the world full of Ninevites, though. See how long the gratitude lasts. It's no wonder, then, the story of Jonah ends with Jonah being reproved for his theatrical and entirely adolescent pronouncement that he would just rather die than live without a castor bean plant. Jonah doesn't learn in the book of Jonah. Let's not make chapter 2 about him doing so then. We can learn though. And not just because we don't get to stay in this great big whale's belly that we call Mount Pleasant Presbyterian Church forever, though I do hope that our exit will be a bit more decorous than getting spewed out onto a beach covered in whale slime. We can learn because we get to be the people who read Jonah with each other and discover things through this cautionary tale that Jonah never seemed to have discovered. We can discover that a whale's belly may be a comfortable place, but a whale, okay, a large fish, is still a very wild animal put on this earth as much to instill awe and perhaps fear, as to give us a cozy place for our prayers. See, Jonah only thought he was getting away from a world that was too big and complex for him to manage. It turns out he was literally inside one of the bigger and more complex things God created. The kind of creature that God points to when questioning Job's ability to understand the world around him in the book of Job. Likewise, no matter what we think we're doing here, this place 
is decidedly more wild and complex than we sometimes think. The church can't be a place where we go to avoid the world, try though some of us might. It's where the world happens around us. And the sooner we adjust to that realization, the sooner we start allowing ourselves to be disturbed by the ideas that we hear from the pulpit, to be startled by the people who may show up and sit next to us in the pews, to be shocked by stories from the Bible that can change our lives, to participate in the ministries of the church. The sooner those things can happen, the better. And that's, I think, one reason why it's helpful to read Paul's letter to the Philippians. Because unlike Jonah, Paul isn't in a comfortable place when he praises God. Paul isn't in a whale. Paul's in jail. Over the past decade for Paul, he'd been beaten repeatedly, cursed repeatedly, rejected repeatedly, questioned repeatedly, blinded, tested, shipwrecked, imprisoned, and yet Paul would rejoice. He'd traveled to much of the Middle Eastern world and had made disrupted plans to go as far as Spain, seeing a great deal of the wild world and the wildness of the world in the process. And still he would call on the church to rejoice. He'd had falling outs and reconciliations with friends. He'd challenged the authorities of the early church and the authorities of Rome. He'd received letters that caused him pain. And in response, he'd written passionate and occasionally angry letters that would later become a substantial portion of the New Testament. And yet, he calls us to rejoice. So when Paul writes... Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Keep doing these things. When he writes that Paul is not wishing us into naivete or comfort, he's letting us know that in the real world out there, when things get bumpy, and the church finds itself in uncomfortable places, we should focus our vision upward, not inward. And our next step should be outward, not backward. See, we, like Paul, are the ones sent out into the world, into the very world that God sent his son into the world, so that we could follow after. And that world, we recognize, is a difficult place right now. Globally, religious, economic, nationalist, and even natural forces are disrupting settled agreements that have long benefited the world community. Nationally, we know that our, our country is not only more divided than at any point in recent memory, but the causes of those divisions, the extraordinary income inequality, the stagnant wage growth, the endemic racism, and the refusal on the part of many of us to take seriously not only the costs that come that some bear for their skin color, but the refusal on the part of many of us to recognize the benefits that others of us receive for our own skin color. To recognize a political system that not only seems broken, but a citizenry whose voting habits suggest they prefer broken and grievance to functional and engaged. To changing technologies and social media that are as likely to be weaponized as to be a benefit to us to increase levels of self-sorting so that we only come into contact with people like us. 
These causes of divisions cut deep in our national psyche right now and across each of our lives in waves that may suggest we'd rather crawl back into the whale. Ecclesially, mainline churches have chosen to decline rather than diversify. Evangelical churches have chosen to become politicized and to cater to one segment of society rather than share the gospel. And more people seem content to treat religion as a place to seek therapy than a place to find meaning. Personally, we each face our own anxieties and struggles, and we recognize those are being exacerbated by all these other tensions. This morning, I was watching TV about the story about the hurricane and flipping through channels, and I re remembered that even talking about the weather, which used to be the way you avoided talking about politics in polite conversation, has gotten political. But behind all that, Paul reminds us God is at work, and we are being called to participate in the world in order to participate in God's work. And in the process, we can discover that this great, big, vertiginously complex, and surpassingly wild world around us is the very one into which God is calling us and in which God is at work in ways that are bigger, more complex, and more utterly mysterious than the world she has created and is in the process of transforming. Because it's easy to praise a domesticated God, a tame one who loves us the way we want and sends us into the world wrapped in close-knit communities, comfortable salaries, and beautiful surroundings. It's faithful, though, to praise one whose power and love knows no bounds, whose ways are not our ways, and whose call may take us where we didn't plan on and perhaps have no intention of going, whether that's to inner city Charleston, or to Charlottesville, Virginia, or to modern day Nineveh. And perhaps along the way we can learn how to be thankful in the surprising places, as well as the comfortable ones. Perhaps even to discover with Paul that we can only begin to really be grateful when our vision of the world is expansive enough to discover that we don't get to dictate its shape. And our sense of the God to whom deliverance belongs is even bigger than that. I know that in the past couple of years, this church has been through some difficult times. And I imagine that some of you are glad that some of those times are past and that you can now come to church in search of comfort and peace and intimacy, because we do that. We seek out the comforts of good food and close companions, forgetting just how uncomfortable the events that the church bears witness to each week are. We seek out the peace of somber and reflective quiet, confusing our own solemnity with God's peace. We seek out the intimacy of communion with a familiar and friendly Savior, ignoring just how awe-inspiring and utterly enormous God's grace is to the entire world. And in so doing, we make the church tame. But churches are not tame places. They are places invested with the wild and awesome power of God. For when we baptize, like happened this morning with Little Rose, when we baptize, we encounter a spirit that moves where it will, including over the face of the waters that bring death and life. 
When we break bread together, we meet a God with the power to shape creation itself into loaves and wine and then fill those loaves and wine with God's presence. We meet a Lord whom even the cold, quiet confines of death could not contain. We meet a spirit making all things. Even a church bent on decency and in order, which can, after all, be code for comfortable. The spirit making all things new. So in spite of the destructive and chaotic qualities of much that passes for church, there is nevertheless a peculiar and appropriately an appropriate unmanageability to the church, a vision into the profligate love of God that happens here, a connection to the one who is bigger and bolder than we could dream of managing and more gracious than our small hopes can contain or appreciate. Because this is the church, a foretaste of God's wild kingdom. Amen.